Okay, uh, good afternoon, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Praise be to God that we have our life and our strength, and we have this opportunity to again study the words of the Father and also our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to talk about the life of Abraham as he is tested by God once again and how he fares in the test and what the implications of this test actually means. But before we go ahead and proceed with our studies, let's go ahead and stand for our opening prayer. Merciful and loving Father, thank you so much for gathering your people together yes. to again study your holy words and commands. Yes. We have so much to learn from you, yes. and we are so eager, O oh God, to receive your holy words, wisdom that we need to carry out our life yes. in a manner most pleasing before your holy sight. We ask that you please bless our hearts and our minds. Help us, Father, to benefit fully from the study of your teachings. Our Lord and merciful Jesus, we also praise and worship you. You have done everything for us, and we proclaim this day and henceforth, no matter what happens in our life, we will cling to you. We will bind ourselves to you because you are our loving Messiah. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, again, thank you so much for attending our Bible study today. Today we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis chapter 22 happens to be one of my favorite passages in the Holy Scriptures. I say this because it has so many implications. It has a powerful and deep message for each and every one of us. That's why I'm so excited to share with you the message of Genesis chapter 22, which is called by the Hebrew people the Akedah. You know what that means? I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but you can call it Akedah, Akedah, Akedah. Doesn't really matter. However, what do you think the word Akedah means. Next slide, please. So Akedah is a Hebrew word, which means what? Next slide. It means binding. Because in Genesis chapter 22, we're going to talk about Abraham and what he would eventually do, which is to bind his beloved son Isaac to be offered as a sacrifice to God. However, I want to keep you focused on the word binding. I'm going to ask you questions about that later on because the binding mentioned here is much, much deeper than the binding of Abraham to Isaac. Now, before we go ahead and proceed with this illustration, let's go jump into Genesis chapter 22, 1 down to 2. What is God's tests for Abraham? Genesis 22, 1 to 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Take note, God appears to Abraham to test him. Always keep in mind, God tests us all the time. Every day, God will test us. God is always thinking about us. And the purpose of God in testing us so that we, we will be able to develop and grow in faith as we serve and worship him. So at this time, we know that Abraham has failed many times, right? But back in Beersheba, he has finally matured in faith. And so he is tested 
by God. Again, this time it's called the ultimate test. Why? Take note of what he asks from Abraham. This is not an ordinary test. I want you to place yourself in the shoes of Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. To do what? To sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Take note, Isaac was a son loved by Abraham. Why do we know that Abraham loved Isaac so much? Because he waited for him for how long? 25 years. When you wait for something so long, you're going to develop a special bond for that someone. He loved Isaac. In fact, his name was Laughter because he brought joy in the heart of, I, in the heart of Abraham and in the heart of Sarah. So he loved Isaac very much. But God says, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. That's very difficult to do. Why? Because before you can offer someone as a burnt offering, you have to slay that person. And so Abraham himself will be, is asked to kill Isaac. Of course, we know it's only a test from our almighty God. What does God want to know? Are we willing to give our best to our almighty God? It's one thing to be tested by waiting for something to happen, right? Waiting to be healed. Waiting to receive something from God. Waiting to be saved. However, it's another thing to be tested in terms of willing to give up something that is dear and valuable to us. That's different. Isaac, one who was loved by God or by Abraham, God says to him, I want you to offer him to me. Now, what was the response of Abraham? Genesis 22 verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham cut some wood for the sacrifice, loaded his donkey, and took Isaac and two servants with him. He started out for the place that God had told him about. What was Abraham able to do? After God commanded him to offer his son as a burnt sacrifice, early the next morning, what did he do? He got some wood, got some servants, and got his son with him to go to the place that God told him about. And so what was Abraham able to do? He was able to obey the command of our almighty God. What does this show us about Abraham? He has matured in faith, right? I mean, if he was not yet matured in faith, maybe he would have bargained with God, right? Can I just offer my wife, <laughs> right? Because he seems to be doing that if we consider the past of Abraham's life, right? He seems to be always looking for his wife as a, as a way to protect himself. But this time he said, amen. Early the next morning, he did not procrastinate. He did not put it, put it, he did not put it till tomorrow. He, the very opportunity that presented itself, he said, let's go. Let's go ahead and fulfill the command of our almighty God. How long was that journey from Beersheba all the way to the place where God is going to take him. Let's read um, what it says here in Genesis chapter 22 and the verses 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. How long was this place or how long was the journey from Beersheba to Moriah? The Bible says it's about a three-day journey. And so they travel from, next slide to kind of give you a, 
a map, but about a 45-mile trip from Beersheba to the regions of Moriah. And in the regions of Moriah, there are several mountains. And there's a specific mountain that God tells him to go to to offer his son Isaac. Next slide. To give you a different angle of the map, you're going to go through the plains first. And then it's, you're going to go through the valleys and you're going to go through the hills of Judea and to the Morian region. And in the Morian region, it's composed of several hills and mountains. And so when Abraham reaches that place there in Moriah, what does he tell his servants? Next slide, Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship. And, take note of what he says, we will come back to you. When Abraham says, we will come back to you, who was he referring to as his companion? The lad, his son, Isaac. So Abraham and Isaac, they tell their servants, we're going to go to that place where God has shown, and we're going to come back. In other words, this was a statement of faith. God was, uh, Abraham was counting on God to be able to do something miraculous. You know why Abraham said, we will come back to you? Let's read Genesis or Hebrews 11, uh, 17 down to 19. It was faith that made Abraham offer his son Isaac. As a sacrifice when God put Abraham to the test. Abraham was the one to whom God had made the promise, yet he was ready to offer his only son as a sacrifice. God had said to him, it is through Isaac that you will have the descendants I promised. Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise Isaac from death, and so to speak, Abraham did receive Isaac back from death. Why was Abraham confident that even though the command to him was to slay his son and to offer him as a burnt offering or burnt sacrifice to God, he said to his servants, when we go to that mountain, we're going to come back here together because God had a promise to Abraham. Do you still remember the promise God made to Abraham? He said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations through Isaac. And so if Isaac is to be killed... God has a big problem, right? And so Abraham realized, you know what? This is not my problem. This is God's problem. I'm going to believe God's promise. And so if Isaac is to be killed, he must be resurrected back to life. That's what he was thinking. This is why the Bible says Abraham reckoned. What does it mean to reckon? What does that mean to reckon? Huh? To, to think about something, right? He was thinking, okay, God had a promise to me. <laughs> Through Isaac, I'm going to be a father of many nations. And God tells me I have to kill him and offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Wait a minute. If he's killed, then how can God fulfill that promise? It only means one thing. God will bring him back to life. And so Abraham believed. And because of his faith, the Bible says God was pleased with him. This is why he had no worries whatsoever. He took Isaac with him. Let's go to the mountain because I know God will be in control. God was able to do what he has 
promise. And so when Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain, what happens? What was the question asked by his son? This is one of the most difficult questions to answer, I believe. Genesis 22, 7 to 8, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, uh, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here. Isaac said, but what's the question? <laughs> hey, Dad, where's the lamp for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And so when they were on their way to the place where they are to be gathered for worship, the son asked the question, right? Where's the lamb? We got the fire, we got the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? I believe God has said something here. God has revealed something to Abraham. He said, God himself will provide. You know, brethren, whenever we are tested by God, we need to always keep in mind, no matter what the situation may be, if we have faith in God, what will God do? He'll provide. doesn't matter what it is. You're sick, God will provide. You need to pay the bills, God will provide. You have some kind of problem with anything in life, God will provide. But what do we need to supply? Faith. What else? Obedience. Did Abraham have faith? Yes. How did he show his faith? By his obedience. He got the fire. He got the wood. But he knows God will provide. You see, when we have faith, no matter what that test is, God will give us a solution. He will provide because God cannot lie to himself. He is a faithful and almighty father. And so when God's, uh, Abraham says this to Isaac, what does he do next? Genesis 22, 9 to 10, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. On a pause for a while, you know, his son was probably 20 years old, 30 years old at this time. And so he could have escaped, <laughs> right? Because Abraham's an old man. Why didn't the son, Isaac, try to escape? Because he was in on the prophecy. He knows about faith. He knows about God. That's why he was in agreement with Abraham. Abraham and Isaac were working together. They agreed to obey the command of God. And so when he was bound, what did Abraham do? He got his knife and he was about to slay his son. At this point, Abraham showed to God that indeed he was loyal, faithful to him. This was the pinnacle of Abraham's faith. Do you remember the struggles of Abraham's faith? He had so many failures, right? So many setbacks. But all of that was a learning experience. The one thing he learned is you can trust God. And so at this point, he trusted the Lord God. And because of his faith and trust in God, he got the knife. And he was about to slay his own son. But before he was able to do that, what happens next? Genesis 22, 11 down to 12. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham. Abraham, 
Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You notice God is trying to communicate something here. He refers to Isaac as the only son of Abraham. But is he the only son of Abraham? He has another son, right? Ishmael. However, because what is being referred to here is a promise of God, according to the promise, there's only one son that mattered, and that was Isaac. That's why he refers to him as the only son. And because God has seen that Abraham has feared God to the point that he was willing to give up his only son because of his love for God and his faith in God, well, Abraham received the message from an angel. And the angel said, do not do that. Do not lay your hand on the boy. And what does God say to him? In, Abraham, in Genesis 22, 13 out of 14, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and, it, and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And so to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so instead of the son, instead of Isaac being offered to God, what was offered instead? A ram. Did God provide a solution to the dilemma? Yes, God provided. And because God saw the willingness of Abraham to offer up his son, what does he say to him? Genesis 22, 15 to 18, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord that God, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And so Abraham received God's blessing. And there's one thing we need to all understand about our faith, brothers and sisters. You see, Abraham loved God so much, he was willing to give up what was dear to him. How about you? What do you love here on earth the most? Is it your career? Is it a family member? Is it a car? What do you love the most here on earth? Do you love that more than God? Because sometimes when God blesses us with something, we end up loving the gift more than the giver of the gift. Abraham learned. No matter what God gives to him, he loves God more than what God is able to give. And once we learn that, once we are able to see and feel and make a commitment to love the giver more than any of his gifts, then we have reached the faith of Abraham. Because at that point, we will be willing to give up even our most cherished possession for the sake of loving our almighty God. Abraham was able to do that, and God blessed Abraham even more. And after this test, the passing of this test, where, where does Abraham settle? Genesis 22, 
Verse 19, Abraham went back to his servants, and they went together to Beersheba, where Abraham settled. So he goes back to Beersheba. I wonder why. What was in Beersheba? Next slide. Let's go back to Genesis 21, verse 33. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and worshipped the Lord, the everlasting God. Why does he go back to Beersheba? Because there he planted a tamarisk tree. And there he worshipped God and called him the everlasting God. Because at that spot right there, that's where he learned from all of his past mistakes and matured in faith. He realized about the everlasting and eternal God. And so all of his experiences up until that point there in Beersheba, they were all preludes to his ultimate test. And this time, he passes the test. And he has been able to give glory to our all mighty God. This is why it's called the Akeda, right? The binding, the binding of Isaac. Now, when I read Genesis chapter 22, we're done with Genesis chapter 22, okay? When we first read Genesis chapter 22, we think that the only subject there is Abraham and Isaac, right? This chapter is about Abraham. That's what I thought at first. Remember, what does the word uh, Akeda mean again? To bind. Abraham bound Isaac. However, this binding is much, much deeper than that. What do you mean? Well, let's go to what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say here. The book of John, chapter 8, 56 to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Lord Jesus Christ, when he was being persecuted by the Jews, he said something to them that really caused them to be angry. What did he say? He said, your father, because they kept referring to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And Jesus goes, he says, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And so Christ said that Abraham was able to see the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. What does that mean? That Abraham was able to see the day of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's read here in the book of Hosea. There's something we need to understand about the Bible. Hosea 12, verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. The Bible. How many here have read the Bible already? The Bible is a unique book because it uses a lot of similitudes. What does that mean? Figures of speech. This is why we cannot always take God's words literally. For example, the Bible mentions God's feathers. Does it mean God has literal feathers? It doesn't mean that at all. We are to take that as a similitude, as a figure of speech. As a matter of fact, did you know the Holy, the Holy Bible has about 200 figures of speech? What are examples of these? Next slide. Examples of figure of speech in the Holy Bible. Simile, resemblances, allegory, comparison by representation, metaphor, 
representation. Hypocatastasis, an implied resemblance or representation. Analogy, we know that, right? Resemblance in some particulars between things otherwise unlike. But what I want to focus on today is what is called a type. Because we believe Genesis chapter 22 shows us a type. What is a type? It is a figure or example of something in the future. It's like a model. You know, when you have a model, if you build like a house, you come up with a blueprint. And then from the blueprint, you have like a, a pretty uh, a model of the house, a 3D model. And from there, you build the actual house. So in Genesis chapter 22, it's not just a story of Abraham and Isaac. It's actually a type, a model of what God is going to do in the future. It is a prophecy being acted out, a prophecy being demonstrated by Abraham and his beloved son, Isaac. This is why Genesis chapter 22 is one of my most favorite passages, not only because of what Abraham did for Isaac, but also because of what God has done for you and I. Let's Read all about that. In the book of Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offered up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You see, according to Apostle Paul. Genesis chapter 22 is actually a type. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ said that Abraham saw my day and he was glad, he rejoiced on that day of Genesis 22. When Abraham and Isaac were on Mount Moriah, God revealed a prophecy to Abraham. That prophecy concerns the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Genesis 22 is not just about Abraham and Isaac. It's also about the Father, our God, and who? His Son. Abraham represented the Father. And Isaac represented who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day in Moriah, what did God reveal to him? Let's read Genesis 22, 7 to 8. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and water here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide. What will he provide? The lamb. Did you notice that? On that day, when Abraham and Isaac went up to Moriah, did God provide a lamb? Did he? A lamb? Remember, this is the prophecy God revealed to Abraham. And on that day, that moment, Abraham saw Jesus' day because God said he himself will provide thee lamb. Question is, on the day of Moriah, when Abraham and Isaac went up to the mountain, did God provide the lamb? Not yet. Not yet. What's the proof? Genesis 22, 13 to 14. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram. Not a lamb, but a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. When Abraham took his son Isaac to the mountain that God has chosen, did God provide the lamb on that day? No. It was a prophecy revealed to Abraham, but it was not yet complete. But what is the promise of God? God said, call this mountain. What? What does he say to call this mountain? The Lord will provide. Future tense. It's a prophecy that is to be fulfilled after Abraham. This is why he calls that mountain, the Lord will provide. Every time they see that mountain, it will remind them of God's promise and prophecy. He will provide a lamb. Where will this lamb be offered to God? On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Right on that very same mountain where Abraham was to offer his son Isaac, God will one day offer his own son. A lamb will be provided. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Is our Lord Jesus Christ a lamb? Let's read the book of John. Chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is Jesus called the, the Lamb of God? Yes. Wait a minute. Was the Lamb of God slain? Revelation 5, 6, 9 to 10. And I saw a lamb looking as if it had been Slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Was the Lamb of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, slain? Yes, this was part of the prophecy and promise of God. But because of the slain Lamb, when Christ is to die, with His blood, He will purchase men. In other words, He will redeem people that they too can receive salvation. And so that Lamb was Christ. Was that provided by God? Yes. Was He slain? Yes. Was the prophecy and promise fulfilled? Yes. What did God say? I will provide on this mountain. Do you still remember which mountain that was? And God said, I will provide on this mountain. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 2 and 6. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. So it's a region, Moriah, okay? Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in Moriah. What does God say? Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. According to the Holy Scriptures, when God speaks to Abraham, he tells him to go to where? Moriah. Because on that mountain, that is where the sacrifice of Isaac is supposed to take place. Next slide. This is a picture of uh, Mount Moriah. It's right next to Mount Zion. 
It's on the left, and Mount of Olives on the right. In between Zion and Moriah, you have Jerusalem. And between Mount Moriah and Mount Olives, you have Jerusalem along that valley there. And Moriah happens to have three levels. Okay, I want you to keep it in mind. Moriah has three levels. What's the first level? Next slide. Next, first level is the southern part of Moriah. Remember, Ibrahim uh, and Isaac are traveling from Beersheba, which is south of Moriah. So it'll be going northwards uh, to this place, the south of Moriah. That's called the city of David. Next slide. That's the city of David. Okay. But it has another level, a higher level, because when you go higher, you get closer to God. At the higher level, there's a threshold there, a flat land, a flat top. And what does God instruct David to do there? Let's read. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 3 in the verses 1. King David, Solomon's father, had already prepared a place for the temple. It was in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David at the place which Arauna, the Jeb Jebusite, had used as a threshing place. King Solomon began the instruction. So on a place on Mount Moriah, what is built there? The temple of our almighty God. During the days of King David and King Solomon. And so that's the second level of Moriah. If we will go to the next slide. Right? So there's Moriah. Do you see the whole region of Moriah? It's colored orange, yellow, and green. That's the whole region of Moriah. The first level, city of David was built. The second level, it goes higher, is Mount Moriah. That's where they built the temple. However, Mount Moriah extends even higher. There's a higher area in Mount Moriah. Next slide. Right there. So where the temple is built, if you can see, if you can look on the left, you see the Dome of the Rock. Long, long time ago, the Dome of the Rock was not there. What was there? Temple of Solomon. Okay. Was there. But now it's the Dome of the Rock, I believe built in the 7th century. But if you go higher up north, it goes higher in altitude. See, many people believe that Isaac and Abraham did not go and offer Isaac there at the threshold, but they had to go higher because sacrifices were done in higher altitudes. So they went to look for the highest peak of Moriah. You see where the temple was built was not the highest peak of Moriah. They had to go elsewhere. This is why in Genesis chapter 22, 4 down to 5 on the third day, Abraham, what did he do? He looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And so when Abraham and Isaac and his servants from afar see the mountain, the higher mountain, because he looked up, he said to his servants, stay here at the threshold place of Moriah. We're going to go to the mountain that is higher than this place to worship God and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So that was in a higher place. That's where Moriah is at. And that's also 
where Christ is to be crucified. This is why when we have a field trip to Israel, we're going to look for that Moriah where Isaac was to be offered by Abraham, which is the same place where our Lord Jesus Christ is to be what? Crucified. So where is this place where Christ is crucified? Because if we're going to go to Israel and look for that place, we need to look for biblical clues, right? Let's go look, look at John chapter 19, 17, 18, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, it's called Calgary. This is why when we have Holy Supper on Mount Calvary, Christ shed his blood. Calgary is the Latin name for Golgotha. That's the place of the skulls. That's where Christ was crucified. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So when we go to Israel, we're going to have to look for a place north of the Temple Mount, north of the Dome of the Rock, right? At the highest place, highest altitude. And that's where we're going to find where Christ was crucified because that's also the same spot where Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac. So where is that at? Right? We know it's a place of the skull. And the reason why it's called a place of the skull is because it resembles a skull when it comes to its features, physical features. But where is it at? Next slide. There's the Temple Mount. Remember, we showed you earlier. You're going to go up north, and you're going to find higher elevation. That's where you will find, next slide, Mount Moriah. And that's where we're going to go. Okay. How does this place look like today? Next slide. You see the Dome of the Rock there? You see the Dome of the Rock? No? You don't see it? It's right at the right-hand corner. Upper right-hand corner. You see it? All the way there. Okay. You're supposed to go up north. When you go up north, it gets higher. Right? And so that part, next slide, that part encircled in red, that's Moriah, where Abraham is to offer Isaac. That's where we're going to go. What are we going to look for? We're going to look for a place that's called the place of the skull, right? And before the Roman times, that was a big mountain. During the time of Abraham, that was a big mountain. But what did they do? Next slide. See that yellow line right there? They took... They excavated big chunks of that mountain to form a quarry along that line. So when you cut off the mountain, it's going to form a cliff face. And what's left is called the quarry. They use the stones from the mountain to create the buildings of Jerusalem. <laughs> Eventually, that stopped. And this is how it looks today. Next slide. That's what it is today. It's become like a bus station. <laughs> And behind that bus station is where I believe the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And that's where we're going to go. But wait a minute. Why do we believe that is the place? Well, we have to remember, next slide, what the Bible calls it. It's called the place of skull. Why is it called place of skull? Well, right there behind the buses, what does it look like? Next slide. Looks like that. Right. Next slide. 
it looks like a skull. <laughs> this is why it's called place of skull, Golgotha. And this is how it looked like uh, 200 years ago. So it still looks the same, right? So during the time of Christ, most likely it looked just like that. Perhaps it looked even more like a skull. I mean, there's a reason why they called it a place of skull, right? I mean, well, why would you call it a place of skull? Well, because it looks like a skull, right? So that's where we believe Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. Next slide. However, we need to look for more clues, right? And so let's look for more clues. Next slide, please. So it's a place of skull. And let's read verse 41 to 42. Next slide. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And so if we are to look for this place called Golgotha, it has to be a place near the garden, a garden that has what? A tomb. What kind of tomb? A new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And what do we need to know about this tomb and this garden? It is from the same place where our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And so that cliff face that you saw, that looked like the skull, that is also the very same place and material that the tomb will be found in the garden mentioned here in the Holy Scripture. This is why if we're going to look for Golgotha, it better have a place that's called a garden, right? And a new tomb inside. Well, do we find such a place? Next slide. Okay. The, the place that I've encircled, that's Golgotha. That's the place where you have the skull feature on the cliff. Okay, next slide. Right there, a tomb was found. You know that? Archaeologists were able to determine, people thought it was some kind of well at first, but then they kept, kept digging, they found it was actually a tomb that was found. Right at around the corner of Golgotha, the place of the skull. To give you a, a better idea of how it looks like, let's look at the model. Next slide. This is a drawing, a modern drawing. Where's the place of the skull? You see it right there? And so not too far away, made from the same material, is the garden tomb. So it's walking distance. It's near the place of the skull. It's near the place where Christ died because the Bible says they placed him in this empty tomb because it was nearby. It was also in a garden. Oh, was there a tomb there? How does that tomb look like? Next slide. This is the tomb that they found. Yeah. And when we go to Jerusalem, we're going to go inside that tomb. Are you excited? I can't wait to go there, right? And see how it feels and, and all that. Next slide. There's the tomb, right? Well, was there a garden nearby? Is that place also a garden? Next slide. What you see there? In the circle, that's the garden. What do you mean? How do we know it's a garden? Well, they kept digging and excavating. You know what they found out? Next slide. That place that we circled, it's actually a garden because underneath it was a cistern, which is used to irrigate vineyards, 
and gardens. Whoever owns this garden and this tomb was a very, very rich man. Because that cistern happens to be the third largest cistern in all of Jerusalem. Not only did they find a cistern there, they also found what? Next slide. A wine press. And so this garden had lots of vineyards. This person was very rich. Are we surprised? Actually, no. Because in the prophecy of Isaiah, this is what it says. Isaiah 53 verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It's as though God prepared beforehand his very tomb where he is going to go to. It's in a tomb, in a garden of a very rich man. Was there a rich man who had a garden, who had a tomb? Let's read Next slide, please. Matthew 27, 57 to 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn, hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Who was this rich man who owned the vineyard, who owned the garden, who, who owned the tomb wherein the Lord Jesus Christ's body is to be laid? It was a rich man, rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And how does the Bible describe this tomb? The Bible says it is a new tomb and it was carved out of rock. You notice that? That's one thing. Number one, it's carved out of rock, the tomb. Number two, it has, a, it has a large stone that you can roll against the entrance. And when we go to this tomb, the garden tomb, which is very close to the place of the skull or Golgotha, what shall we find there? This is how it looks like. Next slide. There. You see the bars? Behind the bars there. It's the tomb. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ was laid. His body was laid. And we're going to go there. You notice how the shape of it? It's not a natural cave. It's not a natural tomb. It was made by hand. Carved from rock. Just like what the Bible says. Well, how about the big stone? Next slide. The stone wasn't found like that. Okay. The stone covered it. This is how the tomb looks like. And when, you, when we go there, what we're going to see is, next slide, you're going to see this um, throw. It's like track. It's about two feet uh, wide. And that's for the purpose of rolling the big stone. That's why it's there. This is why this tomb indeed belonged to a rich man, because it had a big, large stone that you roll to cover the entrance. Next slide. And there's like a piece of block, piece of stone right there to guard the stone. What is the purpose of that? Next slide. It is so that it will not go all the way. <laughs> it blocks it. And the Romans, the Romans, remember the, their instruction was to seal the tomb, right? What does that mean? Next slide. It means they will place iron pins and stretch out chains to seal the tomb and have 
and placed guards to guard the tomb. And when they found this place, guess what they found? Next slide. They found holes and parts of the iron spike still in there. And what's interesting about this iron spike, when you look closer to it, next slide, it's been severed off, <laughs> snapped. What force is required to snap or to break off that iron spike? When engineers went to examine that, they said at least 70 tons of pressure. That's how much force it, it's needed to snap that off. That means you have to like compile together the mass of 10 huge trucks, combine that together, compress that together, and use that to smash that spike. Then it'll come off. That's how much pressure it was required. Human beings don't have that kind of strength. But how was it, ever, how was it severed off? It's like Matthew 28, 24. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. How was that spike cut off? How was it broken off as if it was made of toothpick? The Bible says the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. No big deal for an angel. Impossible for a human being. But from an angel of the Lord, no big deal. It snapped like a fig. This is why to this very day when we go there, we will look at that spike that's, that's underneath the hole to show you how it was severed by a quick blow of power and force provided only by someone other than a human being, but by an angel, right? This is why we believe that spot right there, that must have been the place where Christ was crucified. But let's look for more clues. Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So this place of Golgotha is to be outside the gate of Damascus. Not only that, Matthew 27, 37 to 40, above his head, he put the written notice of the accusation against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then they crucified two bandits with Jesus, one on his right and the other on his left. People passing by, was shooking, uh, by uh, people passing by shook their heads and hurled insults at Jesus. You were going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Save yourself if you are God's son. Come on down from the cross. And so in this place where Christ was hung on the cross, there are people who pass by that place. This is why this place must have been in a place where there are major roads crisscrossing through it. And this is what Romans typically do when it comes to crucifixions. They place them where people pass by. Why? To suit the needs to satisfy the needs of crucifixion. What is that? To be a deterrent. So people will be afraid to go against the Roman government. And so when they saw Jesus, they were afraid. This is what happens to those who are blasphemous. Right? According to them, Christ was a blasphemer. But of course we know he is the son of God, the king of kings. And so this was a place where there are people passing by because it's between crossroads. Not only that, it's also a place just outside the city gates. Right? And so what place is that? Next slide. 
If you look at letter D, do you see letter D there? That's the Damascus Gate. You see letter C? That's the place of the skull. You see letter A? That's the garden tomb. And so Christ left after he was uh, tried. He left the Damascus Gate and followed that path towards C. Straight path, makes a left at C, is crucified, dies, and Joseph of Arimathea takes him to A, the garden tomb. And we're going to follow that path when we go to Jerusalem. Right? Outside the gate, and there's cross streets right there for people to pass by to see our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we believe that this is the place where Moriah, where Abraham was to offer Isaac, and where the father completed that prophecy. Some thousands of years ago, God did not complete that prophecy because he provided what? A ram. Thousands of years later, God provided that lamb in the person who our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Genesis chapter 22 is really not about Abraham. The main hero, the main subject is who? God. And I want to show you something in Genesis chapter 22. Let's go back to 22, 1 to 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Did you know? The first time in the whole Bible, the word love is used, it's right there. Did you know that? The very first time the word love is used in the Bible is right there to show how much Abraham loved Isaac, but in reality, to show how much God loved Jesus. But even though God loved Jesus so much, what did God do? Offered himself. He offered Jesus as a sacrifice. Why? John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is why when we go to that mountain, we are reminded of the name of that mountain that God wanted to be called. People call it Moriah. People call it Golgotha. God says, call it the Lord will provide. Did he provide? What did he do? He gave up his son. He provided the lamb, the lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that we will not perish and instead have everlasting life. But you know, Apostle Paul tells us that God is not yet done. Oh, God has given up his son. And Apostle Paul tells us why. Let's read. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 32. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God. Who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? You know, when God says, the Lord will provide. Apostle Paul is telling us, if he provided his own son, don't you think he will provide everything else? 
This is why whenever we have problems in life, I don't care. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what your problem is. Just think about what Apostle Paul is telling us here. If God gave up his son, if God gave up his son, don't you think he is more than willing to give you whatever it is that you need? This is why we should not be afraid because God offered his son to die on Mount Moriah, a place called Golgotha, in a place called the Lord will provide. When Christ died, because Christ was offered to God as a perfect sacrifice, does it end there? I'm going to ask you a question after this. But I want to show you this verse first. In the book of Mark 16, 1 down to 6, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him because they believe Christ is still in the tomb, right? And so they went there to anoint him with spices. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb. Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Who rolled it away? The angel. They were thinking, how are we going to roll that stone? <laughs> because they know it was a very large stone. But the angel did that for them. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who had been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So when they went to the tomb to anoint Jesus with spices, when they go inside, Christ was not there. Who did they find? An angel. And I want you to take a look at this. Where was the angel sitting at? At the right of the grave. You know what's interesting? Usually, usually, like 99% of the time, when you find a tomb in Jerusalem, the tomb is composed of the weeping room. So the entrance, and then you go straight ahead. That's the weeping room. That's where people cry and mourn. And then right in front of that is the grave. Okay, so it's just one narrow strip. But it says here, the angel was sitting where? At the right hand. When we go to the place, the tomb, the garden tomb, this is the plan of the tomb. Right? When you enter, number one, you go to number two, the weeping chamber. That's where people mourn. In a typical tomb, up of number two, the, the number five, you see number five right there? That's where the grave is at. Usually, number five is on top of number two, but not with this one. With this one, the number five, the actual grave, is at the right. And number eight and number seven, they notice, was not yet finished. What does, that, what, what does that tell us? It tells us this tomb was not yet completed because only number five was ready, <laughs> which suggests... This tomb was never used. 
it was brand new. Isn't that nice? And because it was never used, it's brand new, it's not complete, there's a space there to the right for the angel. And so it confirms what the Bible has revealed. This is how it looks like. Next slide. So when you enter, you enter, you enter the weeping chamber. To the right is the tomb. And to the right of the tomb is the place where the angel sat. And so all of the different details the Bible provides points to this place. Again, we cannot absolutely confirm. But if you look at the biblical evidence, it seems to suggest it's a good chance this is where our Lord Jesus Christ was buried and from where our Lord Jesus Christ has arisen. Have you noticed something about the tomb? What do you notice about the tomb? Something I want you to notice about the tomb. No? Decoration is nice, yeah. What do you notice about the tomb? <laughs> You're gonna. Is it okay if I tell you? That's what I notice about the tomb. That's what a lot of people notice about the tomb. It's empty. <laughs> it's empty. Why? Because the one who was there. What did the angel say? He has risen. Lord Jesus Christ has risen. The message of Mount Moriah, the Akeda, is not just the sacrifice, but also the victory the sacrifice produced. Because Christ did not just die. He also rose back to life. And when he rose back to life, what does that mean for us? I'm going to read the final passage of our studies today, the book of Romans 8.32. God didn't spare his own son, but handed him over to death for all of us. So he will also give us everything along with him. What will separate us from the love Christ has for us? Can trouble, distress, persecution, hunger, nakedness, danger, violent death separate us from his love? The one who loves us gives us an overwhelming victory in all these difficulties. I am convinced that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from God's love, which Christ Jesus, our Lord, shows us. We can't be separated by death or life, by angels or rulers, by anything in the present or anything in the future, by forces or powers in the world above or in the world below or by anything else in creation. Remember I told you to remember what the word akeda means? What does Akeda mean? To bind. You see, on that day, Abraham bound his son. But on that day, God announced how he would bind us to himself. You notice what God said? Nothing can ever separate us From God's love. Did you see that? Why? He has bound us to himself. How? By his love. 
What is this love all about? He gave up his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this, doesn't matter what it is, distress, persecution, hunger, danger, violent death. That's not going to take you away from God. <laughs> no powers on earth, no powers in heaven can take you away from God. Why? He has bound you to himself through Christ Jesus. Not even death can separate you from God. This is why, brothers and sisters, we are so fortunate. Our God is a loving God. If he was willing to give up, and he actually did, he gave up his son for us. We can trust him. He will hold on to us. We can be stuck. We can be ridiculed. Whatever your impossible situation may be. Apostle Paul said, no one will ever separate us from God. That's the Akeda. God has bound us to himself. Whether you like it or not, no matter what happens, we are with God forever. And no one and nothing can ever separate us from him. Praise be to God. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, thank you so much for you have shown us the depth of your love. Long, long ago, yes. you have demonstrated this to Abraham and Isaac. Yes. We knew all along your love was great, yes. but nothing has prepared us for how great it actually is. Father, you gave up your own son. You have announced it long ago that we can have confidence this day. No matter what happens to us, we are forever bound to you by love demonstrated through your son. We are forever yours. Not even death can separate us from you. Because as the son rose from the dead, we too will rise from the grave. Be with you forevermore. Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much. Because we know you love your servants. Lord, we want to be with you. Wherever you are, we will go there. Thank you so much for thinking of us. We will always worship you. We give our life to you. For you are our Messiah. Thank you so much for your testimony. Thank you so much for the demonstration of your power. You are victorious over death. And we know because we belong to you. One day we too shall be where you are at now. Oh God we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed your people throughout the world. And you have forgiven all our sins. For we ask everything. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.